Welcome to Weird Studies, an arts and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martell. For more episodes or to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. Welcome to Weird Studies. I'm J.F. Martel. What is the imagination? According to B.W. Pow, our guest for today, it is, quote, the key to the soul, to seeing pattern and incongruity, to reclaiming the inherent order of the cosmos, to augury and omen, to the restoration and contemplation of mystery, unquote. In other words, the imagination is more than a mental faculty. It's an organ of perception. Pow is a Canadian poet, novelist, and literary scholar based out of York University in Toronto. He is the author of numerous books, notably a seminal study of the relationship between Marshall McLuhan and Northrop Fry, both of whom taught him when he was a student at the University of Toronto, and most recently, The Charge in the Global Membrane, a meditation on the seismic changes overtaking our hyper-mediated world. Powell's work is difficult to categorize because he really is a visionary in the technical sense of the term. For many years now, he has taught an almost legendary course at York University entitled Visionary Literature, from Hildegard von Bingen and Teresa of Avila to Bob Dylan and Patti Smith. It was this course that we picked as our object of discussion for this episode. B.E.W. is a friend and mentor of mine. I first met him in Ottawa when he was giving a talk on his book, Marshall McLuhan and Northrop Fry, Apocalypse and Alchemy, a few years ago. Over the course of the talk and the conversations that followed, I was struck by B.W.'s profound insight into subjects we regularly discuss on the show, the imaginal, the mystical, the weird, the prophetic power of dreams and art. Having him on Weird Studies is something that I'd been thinking about for a while. In particular, I had a feeling he and Phil would have a lot to talk about, being both pedagogues who still believe in the transformative power of an education in the humanities, and indeed the teacher's role in guiding students to and through the visionary is one of the themes of the conversation you're about to hear. It was a joy to record, and we hope it'll inspire listeners to check out BW's very important work. Okay, in lieu of the usual uh, Patreon pitch... I'm going to end this intro with a viewing recommendation. Consider it a bit of Weird Studies homework. In a month or so, Phil and I will release an episode on the wonderful Planet Weird documentary series Hellier, both seasons of which were released last year on Amazon Prime, though you can also watch them for free on YouTube. Hellier follows a group of paranormal investigators as they look into reports of goblins in the hills of eastern Kentucky. To say that this is just the beginning, though, is an understatement. We usually don't worry too much about spoilers on Weird Studies, but Hellier's different. You really have to go into it as blind as the subjects were when the synchronicities started popping. And our episode will assume that you're already familiar with the story. But regardless of whether or not you're interested in what we have to say about it, Hellier, believe me, is worth your time. Check it out. And now, Visionary Literature with B.W. Powell. We hope you enjoy our conversation.
you've been teaching a class at York for several years. How long have you been teaching it? Um, I was a uh, contract faculty at York University for about 10 years, and then I've been tenured uh, at York University since 2009. And uh, my courses, though, during the tenure stream period uh, were all around the visionaries and Marshall McLuhan and Northrop Fry. I had a lot of latitude. And also my books have all been uh, working around that subject matter theme coming at it directly and indirectly, depending on the on the book. When I was tenured in 2010, when my tenure process was finally completed and there was much blood on the floor when it was finished, I had a note from several notes from several people around North America who were familiar with my work and teaching and said, congratulations, and what a great irony that they have now appointed a mystic visionary to the English department, which is renowned for its post-modernist deconstruction, <laughs> secular approach to things. Right. And uh, it was, someone said that somewhere uh, there is a laugh, a great cosmic laugh going on. So, <laughs> right. uh, but the students are drawn to the course and the various iterations of it that have now gone under the grad program where I've been teaching um, have continued that, that stream. And, and while the students are not always, um, how shall I put it, receptive to the implications of the visionary, they're curious about it. And there is a, a very strong element of um, engagement among them. And some of the students are drawn for the various reasons that JF just said, because of the reading list, because of the vast range of it, and the fact that it crosses borders, uh, goes uh, crosses historical periods, and works in translation as well as in English. Yeah. And a couple of years ago, um, well, the course was under threat, right? There was intimations that it might not happen anymore, it might be canceled. And a lot of your former students kind of rallied together to try to like save it and it worked. So obviously the class has a, a lasting effect on its uh, participants. I think because it asks the question, yes, that's true. There were 900 students and fellow writers who rallied to uh, on a petition to, as, as you did, Jaya, to yeah. um, provoke the university into rethinking its process, which they did. And uh, actually things have reversed remarkably well. And so that we, uh, I more or less have been able to continue um, the research and the work um, in the best way that I, I can there. I, I must say that in some ways for all the conflicts and prov provocations at York, it's, it's allowed me to continue with the research uh, and the writing and, and the work on this. Um, you know, one of the books I'm working on is a history of visionaries, as you know, and it's um, mm -hmm. it's allowed that support. And so, you know, anytime you're involved with a big institution, especially one as large as York, it's the third largest in Canada, you, you're going to have these conflicts. I say that in a benign way at the moment because uh, at the time of the experience of having the course cut, it wasn't seemed seemed um, nasty and draconian. What was the What was the rationale given for cutting it? Uh, we were coming out of a strike. Uh, York University is legendary for being prone to long, crippling strikes, and uh, the enrollment in the English department had dropped dramatically. And so the deans gave a very short window of opportunity for signing up for the courses. And they did not inexplicably uh, include our names. Uh, our names were not attached to the courses we were um, to direct. So the course enrollment was very uh, low in the early July. And uh, they panicked, essentially, and started cutting courses all over the place. And then the question was raised at the time as JF 
knows because he was involved in this process about what the purpose of my courses were and particularly the visionary one and also the McLuhan and Fry one because there, there was the question about why are we teaching a McLuhan and Fry course at York University when properly it should be done at the U of T? They don't do it either at the U of T, I should point out. And McLuhan and, McLuhan and Fry course, uh, in fact, deals with them as prophetic visionary figures. Uh, there's no one more prophetic than Marshall McLuhan in, in the literal sense of the word prophecy, which uh, foretelling the future, which is the way most people understand that word. Mm-hmm. He saw what was coming with an eerie prescience Northrop Fry is not prophetic in that way. It, he lends intensity to the reading eye and allows you to see multi-dimensions existing on the page. That's a different mm-hmm. kind of prophetic experience and understanding. But the, the course was reinstated. And, and as I said, uh, part of it was uh, a bit of a conf- bewilderment as to what my purpose was at the English department. Uh, and I think what happened when th- with the petition and the letters and Again, JF was wonderful support, and so many people were uh, from across Canada and Europe. Um, they suddenly realized, oh, these courses have a, a meaning, a purpose, uh, almost a mission within the program. And so that's why they have been reinstated in various forms. In fact, I am doing a course on the visionary tradition, which begins with William Blake and Emily Dickinson on, at the graduate level in 2021 when I returned from my sabbatical. But yeah. if you're if you're asking about whether there's a certain kind of isolation within the, the departments at York, uh, if there's a sense that somehow this is a, a marginal or eccentric activity, somewhat inexplicable given the concerns of the and the mandate of the of the programs, you would be right. And to a great extent, it has been the students who have promoted the work, uh, the the courses, and and maintained them through their attention and interest and attendance. Uh, and and they've gone on to write books and works themselves over the years and responded to it. And even if they reject the premise of the, the visionary, what is the visionary is, is one of the questions of the course. They appreciate and respect the broad range of the reading list and, and look at the figures in very different ways afterwards. Also, one of the things that was once said to me, which I liked very much, was that when the court, we were teaching together, because I teach by dialogue, really, in the class, the students have consistently said over the years that they had the impression we were actually talking to these writers in the room, mm. that it was that Blake was there, that Dickinson was there, that Emily Bronte was there, Rimbaud, uh, Sylvia Plath, God help us, <laughs> was actually there in the room. And uh, there was a very powerful sense of uh, imminence, if you wish. And um, that's because, to me, when you're teaching the visionaries, talking about them, writing about them, all is existing in a present, in a now, in the here. So leading off from Fry's great recognition taken from Shelley that, that we're all participating in the great present of literature through the imagination, uh, then all is now, all is present. They are here. They are in the room with us. Right, right. I am... Um, in fact, looking for something that is relevant to what B.W. just said. Um, it's a guy named Franklin Trichia. Yeah, he was a uh, sort of superstar Marxist literary critic back in the 80s and 90s. He was in the Duke program when Duke was sort of the, the hotness of postmodern literary studies. Anyway, Lentrichia wrote an interesting piece that appeared in the late lamented uh, academic 
I don't know exactly what to call it, tabloid, an academic tabloid, lingua franca. Uh, he wrote a short piece called Last Will and Testament of an Ex-Literary Critic, subtitled A Theorist Rejects His Calling. And here he was just sort of saying, like, uh, he's turning his back on the kind of interpretation that he made his bones and made his reputation, made his fame with. And in this, he describes a turn in his work where it's just entirely about teaching, particularly undergraduate teaching, and it's entirely about staging aesthetic and, for lack of a better word, spiritual encounters with literature. And what you were talking about just now with your students saying that it feels like, you know, Emily Dickinson or William Blake or whomever is actually in the room with them is something that Lentrichia talks about as well. Yes, I, I am familiar with his work, and I think we share many areas of uh, crossover in thinking on this, in that I, I try to make the class, for instance, I ban computers or cell phones from the room, and unless there's a medical reason that someone needs a computer. And so that we are there to engage one another for three hours, and the, and the book that's in front of us, or the poem or the work, and, and to read together and to inspirit it. You know, the word enthusiasm comes from the word entheos, which is to be filled with God or gods, it, to make it a sacred sort of intersection, as it were, in which revelations or illuminations may flow. And while that may sound really highfalutin, I've found that the students really, uh, not all of them, of course, but the, the ones who stay with the classes engage this in a full way and they write by hand. And then what we do is, uh, we read the works together. We'll actually stop in the, in the class and say, all right, let's just read Emily Dickinson. Let's just read Emily Bronte. Let's just read Paulo Coelho or uh, whoever it is that's in front of us. Th this is, seems to uh, turn reading into a kind of mediumistic conjuring experience in which yep. they feel the spirit of the work and they're moved by it. And even when they're provoked by it, provocateur, you know, to have the voice rise, they feel the point, which is, to be filled with the spirit, which, you know, the word inspiration comes from the Latin inspiritus, which means to feel the breath, to feel the wind, to allow the uh, wind to lift you. Mm -hmm. and, and and it is a, a little oppositional, that is, to the trends and movements that students often experience in other classes, because one of the things that we I find, and this may be the point that Phil was moving towards, is the overemphasis on theory. Yeah. And that extraordinary emphasis, I should say, on theory, while useful in some ways, ends up framing and limiting writers who are unframed and, and unlimited. You know, the, the, how do you frame Martha Rimbaud, really? What happens is, is that the theory or conceptual mind sets in in order to square the responses. And what ends up happening is you get a kind of theoretical protocol in which certain systems of thought are followed. And then what often happens, too, is that I find in my experiences that when that goes too far, the students can't read what's in front of them. They'll yeah. give you the theory, but they won't give you the what's there in front of them. Yeah. I mean, this is something that I've found again and again, and I first noticed in graduate school, and people who are working in uh, cultural studies, comparative literature programs, who you'd say, well, what, what are you reading? And they were never reading novels and never reading poems. What they were reading is theory. And the attitude always seemed to be, well, the way I'm going to play it is I'm going to read all of this theory so that when I encounter a text, an expressive text, I'll be loaded for bear and I'll just be able to in 
interpret the shit out of it. But that day never comes. That's the thing that I started perceiving like all the way back in graduate school two decades ago is I was like, yeah, but that day never comes because eventually theory becomes the literature. Uh, in fact, very quickly, theory becomes the literature and you kid yourself that this is a theory that has no qualities of its own. It simply allows you, it's a tool that allows you to understand things. But actually what it is, is its own literature with its own set of assumptions, its own aesthetics, which for the most part, I don't care for. Um, although Because most of them can't write. <laughs> yeah. yep. I'm, I'm sorry to be blunt, but they can't. No, and no, and the true. resistance to the aesthetic, the beauty of a sentence is quite quite apparent in many of the Absolutely. I mean, some of it sometimes is very elegant and eloquent, but but uh, the, the traditions that we probably are speaking about where you have literary criticism like Fry or Helen Bendler, or, uh, people like that, they, they come from the traditions of eloquence yeah. and uh, the humanities. And so that they tend to see their writing as being an extension or, or a recreation rather mm -hmm. than interpretation. Mm -hmm. What I have done, though, is in my McLuhan and Fry class, I talk quite a bit about the difference between perceptual awareness you know, trying to deal with the unnameable present, what's right in front of you, and then conceptual thinking, which is is standing back and looking for pattern, which has its as place, of course. But that great literature, great art, great um, filmmaking, great uh, cinema, great uh, poetics, all are on the percept level. And mm -hmm. when you begin to lose that perceptual, inspirited element, uh, then you get um, interpretation, which is not really recreation. It's it's creating its own dogma, its own um, theoretical protocol, which takes you farther and farther away from the text. Yeah. Okay. So this brings me to the quote that I wanted to read from Franklin Trichia's piece, Confessions of an Ex-Literary Critic. And this is very much in line with what we've been talking about. So this is the quote. The first thing I do in my classroom is shut the door and then make sure it's shut tight. Unfortunately, on the windows of my classroom, there are no shades. Since I do not believe that, as a literary critic, I can have honest recourse to method, theory, and discipline, original writing being, by my definition, the antithesis of those things, I'm uneasy about what I do on university grounds, where those in charge have every right to expect professors to convey knowledge in systematic fashion so that students might come away with an education, quote-unquote, rules of investigation that they might apply to texts that I haven't taught them. The Academy doth make scientific impersonators of literary critics who should, rather, be anarchists. Behind closed doors with only undergraduates in attendance, I become something of a rhapsode. As Plato says in the Ion, rhapsodes are enthusiasts. We're out of our minds. Like all rhapsodes, I like to recite from the text. I tell my students that in true recitation we're possessed. We are the medium for the writer's voice. I speak the text as the writer would speak it. This is my radical and unverifiable claim. And the phrases and sentences flow out of me as they flowed from him in the process of creating the text. The writer flows into me and out of me. My mouth, his exit into our world. Beautiful. And I hear, hear. Um, I, if you, I, I will take that uh, reference down to, because the, the four principles that I try to work with, that I've been working on in my, a short book on inspiration uh, are along those lines, which uh, the four principles are, are duende, which is the rising to the moment, the dance and, and the liberty that comes from 
uh, art being a form of possession, it mm-hmm. being very much in the moment, and then the greening, which is the environment, you know, the veriditis that Hildegard von Bingen talks about, the necessary surround that you need for fullness and emptiness and richness and void, so that the environment needles you and, and massages you and moves you towards a possession and encounter. And then inspiration itself and enthusiasm, and entheos, the Greek term, uh, to be yeah. filled with spirit. And inside the moment is to being also allow whatever changeling experience comes upon you so that the moments are genuinely spontaneous. You also have to accept that when you do that, that there's going to be a transience to the experience. Yep. I, I don't like to do interviews. I like to do possessions, but then I can't remember. I can't remember sometimes what's said, and sometimes my students will say, "Well, did you say this the other day?" And truly, I, uh, you know, we don't always remember because the moment is so charged. The duende moment of lifting beyond the artifact into something that is more transmitted with energy and and um, uh, spirit that it uh, transforms us into another place where the best responses to the, the works actually is more of a recreation than, than interpretation. And in fact, I've come to the point now where I correct my students on, uh, I do stop them and sometimes say, well, I interpret it this way. And then say, well, why not look at it that you are actually through your senses and perception and your enthusiasm, keenness and presentness in the moment that you are recreating this, you're remaking it. Right. You're making mm. it new again. But your, your mention of Duende is interesting, actually. That's, is that Lorca? Who popularized that notion? Uh, duende has two meanings. Duende in the Andalusian traditions uh, refers to a kind of sprite-like figure, something like a leprechaun, that it's uh, an actual uh, sort of forest figure or maybe like um, HD's Oriad. And it's a, it can have a satirical quality to it, nipping at your heels, and an inspirational quality to guide you to uh, where the pot of gold is, as it were. Again, an alchemical image. But then it also was adapted, as Jeff was saying, by Lorca to mean um, the rising that occurs during the flamenco dance in which there's an almost anti-gravitational gesture, power, where you lift off the ground and are in spirit is lifted by the wind and the breeze and the inspiration, a kind of demonic demonic possession. Uh, So Duende has that dual meaning, and that's the way I'm adapting it, is to talk about it as a a freedom. You you learn the dance in order to be free of the dance. Right. There's a concept in the philosophy of Gilles Deleuze, which I uh, admire um, and love. It's a properly French take on this. It's uh, instead of the duende, he says the spiritual automaton, which is his way of describing those moments where a kind of witch's flight takes hold of the, of, of the proceedings. And all of a sudden you're finding yourself coming up with stuff. Like I'm writing an essay right now and I'm, I'm literally in that state where even if I'm doing the dishes or playing with my kids, my mind is still writing and writing and writing. And I have to, I feel this pull back to the computer. It's it's this, uh, and often Phil and I um, on this show uh, have a hard time remembering when we're doing the edits of the show, when we're actually editing the show, we... We are surprised at what was said because often when it when it's really happening, neither of us is really in control anymore. There's this duende, this force, this imp that's kind of taken over, taken us for a ride, a kind of like wild hunt across the freaking firmament, mm. you know. Mm. And then we we end up saying things that neither of us intended to say. Um, usually, for sometimes the best. I find too that I say things that I'm not even sure I agree with. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. We'll often be entertaining ideas that we don't necessarily accept on our show. 
because you're following the witch's flight. You're following that elan, that elan that's taking you into the unknown. And you're, you're willing to entertain something contentious or questionable or even dangerous in order to find out where it leads, right? There's, that, there's a quote by T.S. Eliot in your syllabus that um, I really like. I'll just read it quickly. Uh, only those who risk going too far can possibly find out just how far one can go. I mean, in um, Old Man in the Sea, where the old man is muttering to himself after he struggles back with the carcass of the great fish that he's caught, when he said, I, I went out too far this time. And then he thinks about that, and it's clearly Hemingway stepping in. So, no, I, I just I didn't go too far. I, I just went as far to the edge of failure as I could. Right. I think that's something you keep in the mind because I, I know that when I was writing the charge in the global membrane that it really was like a duende experience it came out so fast it was not the book I wanted to write at the time or thought I would write and it took hold in a possession quite frankly the vast majority of the book I don't remember writing mm-hmm. and it and and often I find that the work is best when it's like that the revision period though the revisionary experience when you step back into it and say well does this make any sense that's that's a different process as you know important but different yeah and the, and the the idea too of the greening the veriditis the environment in which surround and which inspiration can be allowed to flow is again a conversation like this in which all these sparks go back and forth or an environment like the classroom where you have a strong engaged class of recreating students and they they feed that in uh, as well to the encouragement and the ignition of new ideas and thoughts in that sense, education becomes a process of teaching the teacher, too. And mm-hmm. that's what you're talking about. You come out astonished. I'm enough of a McLuhanite to believe that the energy that is transmitted in those moments of exchange in the classroom, that the, uh, the medium for that energy is sound. Maybe not exclusively sound, but like McLuhan, I'm very taken with the idea of auditory space. Something you said at the beginning that visionary doesn't, entirely capture the meaning that you're after in talking about the visionary tradition. And uh, when we talk of clairvoyance, we should also speak of clairaudience. And this is an idea that's kind of close to my heart. In fact, it's really the central idea of my book, Dig, which is an intellectual history of hip culture in the um, years after World War II, and spent a certain amount of time thinking about the beats. Actually, I had a kind of funny experience Uh, One of the things I research, one of the things I write about in the book is a cache of unpublished and little-known acetate recordings that John Clellan Holmes made in 1949, when they were all just at the beginning of their career, but they were either unpublished nobodies or, in Kerouac's case, just about to publish or right at the time he was publishing The Town and the City. 
and they're still kind of getting their act together and they're getting their aesthetics together. What we associate with the beats still kind of in the centering phase. And it so happens that John Clellan Holmes had an old fashioned acetate cutter. This is the kind of recording device that was quickly obsolesced by recordable tape at about this time. Uh, he just inherited one from his brother-in-law and had it sitting in his apartment. And so there are the about five hours of recordings of the beats getting drunk and trying to sing freeform jazz, uh, not to, not to very great effect. Um, cause, cause none of them could carry a tune in a paper bag. Uh, but what's interesting is how the much mythologized influence of jazz on the beats, you can kind of see in these early years that they're very taken by the idea of jazz in advance of even knowing very much about it. John Clown Holmes himself is more into classical music, but it's sort of like you can almost see them sort of deciding like, OK, we're going to be about jazz because jazz represented for them this idea of human subjectivity born along through the medium of sound, something that they clearly were already thinking about in the poetics of their own works, the idea that uh, that special something, duende, that they want to convey in a literary form, that that is something born in sound. And so they're trying to think of ways of putting their literature, their literary work in the same room with sound. And so you can hear them getting really excited about this recording device because it seems to be, you know, I mean, for us, it's a tiresomely familiar thing, things that can record your voice. But at the time, it would be like never having looked in a mirror before and then suddenly seeing yourself in the mirror. They're really excited about the experience. And you can kind of see the way in which they're really kind of beginning to form an idea of their collective project. It's a fundamentally auditory one. This and is a very interesting thing. Uh, actually, I know your book. I didn't realize that was you. Uh, <laughs> and, oh, okay. and, uh, I, I found it in Barcelona when I was there. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, and I, I teach a section in my visionary course on the beats, of course, and we do Kerouac and Ginsberg and sometimes Diane de Prima and, and uh, Burroughs, uh, who was, to me, always a bit of the outsider to the beats. His sensibility was... A little different, different yeah. Yes, to put, <laughs> put it mildly. But there is that orality in his work, too, that acoustic space element and recognition of it. By the way, did you know that McLuhan wrote a, a seminal essay review of Naked Lunch in 1964. I did not. It, I did not It's called know that. Notes on, on William Burroughs, and it's a fantastic piece. And just, uh, you know, the footnote, it's where I found the phrase, the global membrane. I think it's the only time that McLuhan actually used it. And mm. I may be wrong about that, but that's partly where I, I found it. And, and it talks about Burroughs. You can imagine that the Catholic humanist McLuhan, who was in his person a very subtle and, and conservative person, you know, I mean, I don't mean the kind of neoconservatives you're seeing a, a washing over everything right now. He was a, you know, a Canadian cordial gentlemanly kind of character uh, and very much a family person would have been appalled by Burroughs in so many ways, but he had this brilliant insight, which I try to teach my classes that the best way to perceive, to move towards percept and vision and clear audience is to remove your, your judgment, to remove your, your opinions, as it were, and allow the moment to flow, allow that duende to erupt, or allow the, the entheos to take hold. So he does in his response to Burroughs, and his insights are extraordinary uh, because he sees Naked Lunch as a seminal understanding of the addictive side of media, which we're seeing playing out in elections and Facebook and uh, so many things now where the addictive element is, well, I don't know, there are times when I look at what's happening and I long for repression. 
Mm. Yeah. No, for sure. Well, and I think and I think McLuhan saw that coming. Yes, he did. And in fact, it's in that famous essay on uh, not so well known essay, excuse me, on uh, Burroughs, where he actually says that there is a time coming where uh, unlimited discharge of opinion, uh, information of obscenity uh, will uh, so blur the airwaves that it will become a kind of junk. Uh, experience for everybody that uh, wired in whether whether you're wired in or not you will be addicted uh, but I'm uh, also fascinated by what Phil was saying because not only in the the orality of the class discussions we do performances of Howell and we do performances of Daddy and Lady Lazarus and the students um, are encouraged to not just read it but to enact the poems so they become the poems and that yeah. therefore their voices are being uh, translated as, as it were into this sort of transfusion of the poet and the the student simultaneously that they be, the classes become intense experiences of uh of listening of sounding and that this is demonstrates the point that we were trying to make earlier that the visionary experience can be clairaudient and if you look back in the great biblical traditions there are exceptions of course but many of the great prophetic figures, in the, especially in the Jewish books uh, of the Bible, I prefer to say that than Old Testament. Old Testament carries a, such a pejorative that the uh, Isaiah and Jeremiah and Malachi and so many of the uh, great uh, prophetic books are all oral experiences. That is, they're hearing the voices. They are f- sensing them uh, within and in fact, um, in the conversion story that St. Paul talks about in, in his letters, he never says that he actually sees Christ. He says that he hears him. Mm-hmm. Right. The famous road to Damascus moment, there are two witnesses with Saul at that point, as he was known, and uh, they do not see anything. And of course, if you know the, the famous trial with Joan of Arc, she continually says that the, they were voices that spoke to her, and then they suggest, the priests suggest madness or dislocation. And she said, it's not that kind of experience. It's, uh, she said, it's not in a language that can be paraphrased or translated easily. And I think this is what's fascinating to me about the oral experience is uh, how it comes through the imagination and translates into your presence and how you hear things. And uh, I'm sure, JF, Phil, you would agree that uh, when you write, your work is strongest usually when you hear the the book. Right, mm-hmm. right. I mean, yes, I agree. I, I agree with all that. One, just a side note, is it's interesting to consider the shift from the visual to the auditory or to the oral in the Bible, because the early prophets tend to see things and the later prophets tend to hear things. So whatever that means, I don't know, but it's definitely a pattern Moses saw things, and um, Isaiah hears things. But the hear, it, there's a synesthetic quality to all this too, because the the voice speaks in images, right? So it's not that I've had trouble with McLuhan's uh, emphasis on the audit, on the on the oral on on sound. I see where he's coming from, and I agree. But it seems interesting that the the, the voice always speaks imagistically. It doesn't speak conceptually. Well, I think you're. I think you're. You're pointing to a very powerful, important point, particularly about McLuhan about the synesthesia, because it's a, a really a, a verbal, vocal, visual, tactile experience, and so the oral carries the physical, the tactile, and as you say, the image base is very powerful because the voice casts images into the imagination. Right, and, and I think part of what um, 
his disagreement with Fry uh, was over Northrop Fry was over the idea that books are just read by the eye. That the power of the imagination comes in the auditory experience, which infuses the text so that you're not just reading it, you're hearing it. And then once you hear, the, the imagination is, um, is triggered, incited, provoked, inspired by the sound, the texture. Um, right. But then so, some of what Phil was saying earlier, it's interesting. It's hard to imagine McLuhan as a beat. He was a very cautious man in his private life. But on the other side of it, the way he taught and the way he talked to us and the way, uh, you know, I was in one of his classes and, and the way he experienced things was in that spontaneous aphoristic moment in which there was a, he was a medium himself. Things would erupt out of him that you would never find in a book. One of the most beautiful things he ever said in class. I think he said it in class. I, I don't know whether I'm adding to it. It's apocryphal in my own imagination. But it's um, was the in the electronic age we are living entirely by music. It's a beautiful mm. aphorism. I've yeah, never found nice. it in any text. And I've sent McLuhan friends who are familiar with the the uh, archives to see if they can find it. No one's ever found it, but I know he said it. And it's one of those things that has, uh, sometimes I think all my work, whatever it is, is a, a sort of footnote to that phrase, trying to understand it. But it comes back to Phil's comment that clairaudience, musicality, and speaking, and the preference for the oral, which infuses McLuhan's approach to thing, had uh, analogies to the beats, even when he may not have entirely sympathized with their way of life. Well, and it's a deep, I think it's a deep attribute of what you're calling the visionary tradition. Last night in preparation for a conversation, as I looked at the syllabus for your class and was happy to see a couple of musicians. I'm always happy to see musicians included in literature classes. Uh, Joni Mitchell's Woodstock and um, Bob Dylan and Hildegard of Bingen. So last night I watched a staged production. It's a very nice filmed uh, film of a sage production of Ordo Virtutum by Hildegard of Bingen. And it reminded me, it, I hadn't listened to that music since I was in graduate school, but I've forgotten that the devil is a character in that. It's a morality play where all of the different singers are personifications of different parts of the soul, aspects of the soul. Uh, there are some male voices that are personifications of the patriarchs. And then there's the central quote unquote character of the soul herself, who is subject to temptations and returns penitent and so on. But there's also the devil. And the devil is the one character who isn't given music. The, the devil doesn't sing. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. And this is a remarkable work because this is by a wide margin, the first piece of liturgical drama in the Middle Ages for which an authorship of both music and words remains extant. Uh, we know that Hildegard wrote both the music and the words. So this is very much a kind of, you know, it's like a, I think, saying Gesamtkunst's work would be a little bit pretentious, but you know what I mean. But it, it's it's pointing in that Wagnerian direction, I see, yes. And, yeah. and I begin with her in part for, uh, in my class, in part for the reasons you've just given. In fact, we begin the class with the chants. I don't I barely say anything to the class. We just start with that. Mm. I get them to do an imaginative exercise of casting themselves back into her time and trying to uh, hear the, the music. But because she's an originator, she was someone who saw also that the the universe was born through sound and that the word, as she understands it, is a spoken experience, an utterance, an outering. Yes. We, yes, and we end with, 
Joni Mitchell's Woodstock because the her version of it, not the Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young version, which I, I I love too, but it's very different, as you know. She does the octave leaps that uh, Hildegard frequently writes for her her uh, plain songs. She and yeah, if you you know if you put Joni Mitchell and Hildegard von Bingen side by side, I don't know whether Joni Mitchell knew Hildegard von Bingen. I doubt it, but there's an eerie sense that somehow or other there. They are speaking to one another in the unlimited time of the imagination. It's like they bypass the paper-thin walls that separate them and speak in that unnameable moment. And, you know, I think it's important to remind students, you know, also that because they come out of a multi-sensuous world anyway, that texts have these connections and references back and forth with one another. I love the connection you made between Joni Mitchell and Hildegard of Bingen. That's brilliant. And it's never occurred to me, but you're absolutely right. Uh, there are moments of real ecstasy in Order Virtutum. I emphasize, I'm not a chance scholar, but one thing that is obvious to anybody who listens to traditional Gregorian chant and then listens to Hildegard's music, which is also written as chant, as a string of single notes uh, with no accompaniment and no notated rhythm. And so you have to get into that whole debate about like how you perform these chants rhythmically. But even on a very approximate first listen, you notice that Hildegard's lines sprawl all over the place. They soar, uh, they pirouette, uh, and there's this kind of ecstatic arching of contour and gesture in her lines that really does remind me of moments in Joni Mitchell's songs where Mitchell is doing the same thing and those cries at the end of Woodstock. There's a lamenting element to it, a sorrow to mm. it. And considering mm-hmm. she wasn't at Woodstock, which is, you know, one of the great mysteries of that song, she caught something that was of the transience of the visionary experience because she has in the lyric, you know, we came across a child of God and et cetera. And then when I came to, came to Woodstock and everything is transformed, you know, the, the, I saw bombers in the sky turned into butterflies. There is a, a hallucinatory visionary transformation that goes on, and it, the, the lyrics imply uh, a cultural cusp, a threshold into a new age in which you know we're all babies, as Jack Kerouac said, the brand new world. Uh, but there is an implication too that that it won't last, which I think links her very well with the the crossroads traditions in in the visionary, because there is the implications you could come to the crossroads and not know what's going on and not not really understand it, or that the experience will pass you by. And so those octave leaps that she does, which, as you say, are, are ecstatic in Hildegard, seem to me at times in Joni Mitchell to be um, part of the lamenting element of that period. Genesis 32, uh, Jacob is race, wrestling with the angel, whoever the angel may be. It's great mystery uh, who that creature is. And he wrestles the angel or supernatural being or perhaps Elohim, whoever it is, to the ground. And the, the supernatural being grants him the blessing, which is new life, Israel, and the, uh, the idea of Israel, and the idea of 
a new culture, new society, but he wounds him, he maims him, he, he leaves him by legend, Jacob limped after that experience. And so the wound is something I hear in Joni Mitchell's Woodstock, which I don't hear in Hildegard von Bingen's mm. music. Mm. The wound of modernity. Earlier, I was going to refer to the uh, those passages in uh, Gutenberg Galaxy, where McLuhan is analyzing King Lear, reading it as a prophetic description of a kind of breakdown of the senses, right? That maybe that there's a, a kind of holism for good or for ill in Von Bingen that Joni Mitchell can't restore, can't retrieve. There's a kind of um, a linearity to the transience of things that she can't believe anymore. One of the things that we wrestle with in the class and I try to wrestle with in my writings is that Dante, Hildegard von Bingen, uh, Teresa of Avila, uh, Rumi, and, uh, and many of the figures that we begin with, or figures you could do before, uh, that come from before those figures, um, mm -hmm. presume, understand, comprehend a, a faithful cosmos, a cosmos right. in which channeling is open one way or the other. What's fractured, broken, alienated, and lost is ourselves, but the cosmos itself is not. Uh, but I think with Joni Mitchell, you, you uh, hit it right on, which is, you know, and for Burroughs too, uh, naked lunch mm -hmm. is hell. It's an inferno. There's no presumption that there's a purgatory or a paradise that follows it. There's just the hell. Right. A, a season in hell, that's what it's all about, right? A season in hell is that we are, you know, in what, from a, a kind of Indian perspective, we might call it Kali Yuga, that this this age, I mean, the Kali Yuga is much longer than modernity, but that we are in the darkness, in the at the bottom now. And that um, at the bottom, it doesn't look like there's, there's a top anymore. It just looks like it's just bottom all the time. <laughs> One of the key phrases that we wrestle with in our, classes and I use as a kind of uh, mantra for, for when I'm working is that uh, breakdown leads to breakthrough. Right. And that's actually an R.D. Lang phrase. I know that McLuhan picked it up, but it's um, it actually came from the great, I think, forgotten psychologist, uh, R.D. Lang. And breakdown leads to breakthrough can mean so many things. It's sublimely ambiguous. Uh, but we're living in that time in which there is extraordinary breakdown but there's also extraordinary breakthrough. And it's possible that now the variation of that line would be that breakdown and breakthrough exist simultaneously. And that, so you have implosion, explosion, change, transformation, revelation, illumination, uh, duende, uh, also darkening and crashing and plummeting and, and uh, you know, it's on the road turns into J.G. Ballard's crash right <laughs> mm. uh so that there is a battle for consciousness now and some cultivate the uh the richness of our opportunities the sort of an angelic vistas that we do have at this point tired Chardin said that all periods of abyss will be um also accompanied by periods of summit of um that they're simultaneous and right. i try to break down the either or discussions in our class uh, so that we don't think that way, that we think of both and. And, and sometimes, you know, when, when the doors, you talked earlier about um, uh, the beats, but the doors picking up in their first song of their first album is break on through to the other side. There is that implication, which I think they lost in their later music, but that, that there is something on the other side 
of this reality, that there are many realities coexisting. Uh, These these realities can erupt, emerge through art, through poetry, through music, through vision, but also now on the internet, we see it all the time. That may be a simulacrum, as Baudrillard will call it, but it's one that has a very powerful grip and possession too. Rimbaud's ambition of the deliberate disordering of the senses is now a normal activity on the internet. Everybody's disordered, dislocated, here, there, and everywhere simultaneously. But in that disorder, in that breakdown of the senses, there's the the restoration of a certain possibility that's been lost on us, that was lost in purely visual culture, which is the possibility of a kind of synesthetic, symphonic appreciation of the of of the real. Like so that it, once the senses become disordered, the breaking on through would be a kind of um, retrieval of that synesthetic experience, maybe of that Théal de Chardin type of like immediate apprehension of the whole as not a whole that subsumes the parts, but as a kind of multiplicity of the parts. Uh, you know, I, I'm getting a little technical, but there's maybe that's kind of where the, the uh, one way of articulating the promise of the modern is that we find a new spirituality in it. It seems to me imperative that we do if we're going to get out. I mean, I mean, <laughs> The, the the loss of faith that characterizes a lot of the modernists and the, the romantics and all that, that kind of like despairing at the loss of ground, you know, that Nietzschean God is dead thing has to bottom out on something. It's become so rampant now and so widespread that it's affecting our institutions, our social institutions, our faith in in traditions, our faith in democracy, our faith in it's kind of a crisis moment right now. And uh, it seems like it's high time for breaking through to the other side. But what that looks like, I mean, is anybody's guess, I guess, at this point. I, I, I'm i in agreement that this, I, I think perhaps we could say that all of the modernist periods and um, the romantic period really morphed into modernism. I mean, I don't know whether romanticism ever really ended. No, I think it's part of the program of romanticism to rename itself with each generation so that it thinks it's not romanticism anymore. <laughs> that's right. And, and, and also the, the, uh, uh, the duende that's available to cultivation or instinct for artists and uh, others and who are experiencing uh, you know, the, the raw feed of the new environment, um, they can, it can be a lifting and enlightening experience too. I think that that as uh, J.F. was describing, you have vast breakdown going on in institutions and the political structures because it's not a question of keeping up. It's a question that all these forms and figures are disintegrating, reintegrating, uh, being remade through the cracks in our sudden experience in which all these different realities are sliding in and slipping around. If you have this vast ambiguity and transformation breaking through to the other side, is um, just happening all the time. That unlimited time, uh, the, the uncanny moment that comes from that spiritual infusion, as it were, that duende, is actually available to all of us all the time. And so one of the things that now, through the, uh, through the electronic world, and it seems to me that what McLuhan prophesied has now electrified at an, at an extreme that is so instantaneous and immediate that it's impossible to keep up with it. But is it a time of great spiritual, Tyre de Chardin calls it the apogee. The uh, abyss and the apogee are simultaneous. Um, 
So we do see that there are great movements in our time of compassion and empathy and attempts to understand one another and see one another simultaneous with this breakdown. That's why I think breakdown and breakthrough are, uh, are simultaneous is a much more useful or arresting modification of that original phrase. thing I would I would add to our discussion and is that there are really different kinds of visionary experience and it's right. very difficult to frame them as any one thing because the very nature of the visionary or the clairaudient is to break frames and break definitions and sometimes the ineffable quality of a, of that experience which bring can bring terror and awe or terror or awe um, will shatter the way that you speak about it. And William James in his Varieties of Religious Experience, which is not only a great work of literature, but still a seminal study of the visionary, uh, really uh, identifies that frequently wordlessness um, comes about, that trying to push to the edge of what can't be said or to see what can't be seen or to hear what really can't be heard is part of the revelation experience. And... I would also say that there, there are, you can break it down a little to say that, you know, there's revelation, which is something comes to you and something that, that overwhelms you or overpowers you. And then there is also illumination, which is you come to it that through um, aesthetic or spiritual experiences, reverie, channeling, dreaming true in the First Nations traditions or through a mentor or guide, you know, the Virgil. Dante um, model that you you find illuminations or you know the way that Rambo talks about deliberately dislocating yourself that's not experience coming to you that's seeking it out and then there's also the uh, enlightenment traditions of visionary which is that there is a path a path that you follow and the steps will lead you towards it so there's practice discipline study meditation um, prayer a kind of shaping of your experience so that you're prepared. Uh, and then there is a mix of all of the above in which, you know, something may come to you, you may find it, and you may be in a practice or a discipline that allows for the openness, the receptivity, the inspiritus to occur. And I also talk to my classes about how dangerous the experience can be. You know, yeah. in the, the Kabbalah traditions, which Bill's knowledge of the beats would, I think, be very intense uh, awareness of, of their of their link there. You're, you're supposed to be of a certain age, grounded, very disciplined, preferably have some kind of strong domestic life, so that the dislocation of entering into the fields in which the supernatural may link with the natural doesn't drive you mad, doesn't turn you right. into Antonin Artaud. I think one of the most beautiful things T.S. Eliot ever said about in his criticism, and sometimes his criticism is a mixed experience, but one of the remarkable things is what he said about Baudelaire having the courage to be damned. And I see that in Burroughs, 
and I see that in in um, many of the other uh, visionary travelers who, uh, whether willingly or unwillingly, become recipients receptive to the visionary power, the breaking through the the threshold experience, the idea that broken windows will bring different dimensions of reality, that it can be a, a frightening and horrifying, debilitating and dangerous experience. I see that in Sylvia Plath, that when, once she cracks open to the extraordinary power of seeing in that analogical sphere that she does, and Daddy and Lady Lazarus in particular, then you have... Um, a, a great threat to herself, that is the mythic poetic self, endures in the, in the poetry, but the, the existential biographical self collapses. And that's something that I think is worthy of remembering for all of us. You know, Kerouac uh, particularly would be another example of someone who simply couldn't, I know he couldn't handle success, but there's another aspect of it too, which is that he, his insights, perceptions overwhelmed him, overpowered him. And yeah. Uh, and, and as you know uh, well, Phil, uh, Ginsburg's struggle with schizophrenia mm-hmm. and uh, his worry that his mother's influence on his genetic makeup was so powerful that it would eventually uh, land him in uh, psychotic states, moved him towards yoga, Buddhism, and a, a very intense self-discipline, which he uh, didn't always reveal to others, that allowed him to have a, a life of some... Mm-hmm. Some peace, I guess, a rest on the mundane plane, you know, when you're not prone to the visionary uh, all the time. I don't know how you could live in that realm and, and not be dislocated. My experience with McLuhan was that a lot of his illnesses uh, at the end, you know, he was very, uh, I was in the last class he gave, that he was very frail. And that frailty seemed to me to be in part because he was mainlining the new world mainlining the brand new cosmos that was coming about through electricity. Yeah. And uh, he overloaded, you know, his strokes and paralysis and couldn't speak. There's a warning one should attach to to the visionary experience that it's very tempting, it's alluring, it's very, very seductive. But once in it, you may find yourself troubled by what happens. And, you know, Abraham's great call of, you know, Lord, what is it you want me to do is... uh, uh, extremely important, I think, in what we're talking about. Yeah, there's no informed consent to the visionary. You can't know what you're in for. And that is a quandary for the educator, I can tell you. If you're teaching a course on this stuff where you're asking students not simply to kind of squirt it with historicist disinfectant as a first step. Here's some weird ideas that long dead people had. Um, if you're not doing that, you're taking these ideas seriously, you are thereby at least implying that these are experiences that exist for your students, that they can have them too. But then, you know, there's always going to be students who want to know like, okay, but is this stuff real? And the only way you can prove to your own satisfaction how real any of this stuff is, is by actually undertaking some kind of visionary experience. But that being said, I feel like that's a dangerous place to take a class. You know, I I taught a seminar last year called Music and Esoteric Studies. This is for our doctoral students. And I just sort of said this at one point. You're going to read about all of these different states and you know the astral the imaginal whatever you're gonna read about all this stuff you're gonna be curious about it 
And if you don't have a teacher or a guide in this area, leave it alone. And I'm not going to be that teacher or guide either, because that's not, you know, I've, I feel like that's not my job as an academic, as somebody working in a university. I love to talk about this stuff, and I am not going to just sort of deal with it in that kind of trivializing historicist way. I'm going to ask people to take it seriously. But then at the same time, you know, the class is going to be a class about this material. It is not going to be the actual pursuit of this material, in part because that's a, a kind of a risk that you would be asking students to take, to shoulder, that they can't really know what they're getting in for. And uh, you can't be responsible for what they might encounter if they decide to enter that realm. Do you know what I mean? I do. And in fact, you're, you're echoing um, thoughts I've often had with my classes, particularly when we're deep inside the, the darker visionaries, uh, Sylvia Plath and Paul Chelan and many of the poets of the 20th century who, uh, who absorb great darkness in their work. Mm -hmm. For uh, years, I wouldn't teach Naked Lunch because I, I had developed a, a sensitivity or vulnerability to its its tattooing of curses and his understanding of black magic, which is profound. Yeah. I put it back in the course list this year, but then I surrounded it with the, the softer visionaries, the ones who you know don't send sort of a passport of anxiety onto you. And mm -hmm. I, I'm very aware of what you're talking about, Phil, and I try to, as the class goes on, try to talk to students about those caveats, those beware points. And because I'm a writer, a poet, a novelist, as well as a, a teacher and a, a critic and an essayist, and, you know, my work merges and blends and goes back and forth. And sometimes it's not always that clear to me where the barrier or the border is. And I've had to learn myself to step back at times through domesticity, uh, through my own cultivation of a private space of solitude. So then, mm -hmm. um, refusing to be photographed as much as possible, for example. Yeah, yeah. And there there are all kinds of things that I, that you're referring to that I, and I do talk to the students about. And then one of the obvious points too, is that as being a, a student of myself in the classes of McLuhan and Fry, here I am 40 years later, still wrestling with their work and still mm. beginning to understand it. Mm. And I could see that in many ways, their breakdown and breakthrough came from the McLuhan's breakdown of health but there in Fry, it was his retreat into academic um, branding, I suppose we would use the word right now. He was mm -hmm. very, very careful not to let the uh, uh, extraordinary visions that he was having the Bible as, as an analogical book rather than a literal one become a driving missionary impulse that he you know, withdrew into classrooms and also committee rooms, and et cetera, et cetera, and used a very tactful way. So I, I take your point very well that... There have been times when I will tell the class that this is dramatic and exciting and sounds spectacular and attractive, but keep in mind that the explosion, implosion, breakthrough, breakdown structure can be transferred into you. And yep. that uh, you must take that line cautiously and be around people that don't try to cultivate that as a, uh, you know, Saturday night fever thing that you do and somehow you can wake up on Sunday and be okay. Yeah. Yeah, because it will change you. It will go into you and it will do its obscure business in there. And you don't know where it might be taking you. These are very wise things. And not only to beware of the princes, but beware of the energies that will come through when things break down. Because if your protections are shields, 
Samuel Johnson suffered from terrible melancholia, uh, talked about how he needed shields to protect himself from these dark energies that would flow in to him when um, he was very vulnerable. And they would be friendship, kindness, a good meal, he said, talking to Boswell, uh, having a cup of coffee. Yeah, in the seminar that I taught, we spent a certain amount of time talking about banishing. So we're looking at history of magic, among other things. And especially if you're looking at more old-fashioned ceremonial kinds of magic, there's always a very great emphasis on working with protection, especially if you're working with like goetic demons or something. Shields, yeah, you know, summoning an entity in a triangle of art and doing it from within a circle. And one of the ideas that I really picked up from Lionel Snell, who's a magician and uh, philosopher of magic who I admire greatly, uh, one idea that I really picked up from him is the idea that this idea of banishing, although it assumes a kind of very dramatic and staged form in ceremonial magic, is really something that we do in everyday life, that what we're banishing, and this is a point that I make made to my students, you know, possession, you can think of demon possession as being this very esoteric, eldritch kind of experience that isn't likely to happen to a modern person. But, you know, following on Lionel's ideas, I say, you know, we get possessed by ideas all the time. And academics are particularly prone to be possessed by ideas. You know, your, your idea that you're developing for an article or a book, it's very easy to see absolutely everything in the world in terms of that idea, especially systematizers to bring up, you know, bring things back to the beginning of this conversation, the people who are all about theory, who always seem to be chasing some kind of panoptic, you know, view from nowhere from which they will be able to survey everything. This can turn into a kind of mania, a hermeneutic mania. And one thing that I told the students about actually is something that JF and I did back when we were writing thousands of words a day to one another and like developing these fevered ideas that we've been pursuing ever since in this podcast, that we'd start signing off our emails with the phrase, what a load of bullshit. It's just a way to deflate, like, okay, I'm going to be super serious in articulating this cracked out theory, but at the end of it, I'm going to give it, as the ceremonial magicians say, license to depart. And so you can go now by just the performance of this little gesture of not buying into it, or at least holding it lightly. And I said to the graduate students, you know, this is actually something to do, and you can do it in whatever form makes sense to you, but as a kind of a mental hygiene in the pursuit of a totally non-esoteric, totally traditional academic career, uh, it's good to banish. It's good to pay attention to your psychic defense systems. And that's an idea that actually kind of stuck with them. I've had that idea quoted back to me a number of times. Yeah, that's a key thing. And I actually, I'm, I'm it's, um, it's coming into play your idea of banishment, Phil, in this thing I'm writing, because one of the things that I'm trying to do here, and I'm not going to go into the details, but I'm working with Deleuze and Guattari's last collaboration, What is Philosophy?, where they say some things that from a, a Deleuzean point of view might be problematic, which is that at one point they say, you can be a Platonist or a Kantian or a um, Cartesian today because you can make use of their concepts for your own uses. 
because you know a, a strict Deleuzian interpretation would be that Plato is the enemy. Plato, we have to overturn. We have to put him down. We have to bury Plato. But what he's saying is that all of this talk about overturning this guy and applying you know dialectical materialism to history and all these things, all of that philosophical work, all that academic interpretation happens within a context that is what Deleuze calls the non-philosophical. And the non-philosophical is necessary to philosophy. And what it is, is normal life. Yeah. What we all share, the common world we all live in. And that's precisely what disappears on a strict, radical, um, theoretical perspective. What disappears is the common life, the common experience mm-hmm. that we all share. Whereas philosophy, um, and I'm just using philosophy as an example because that's what I'm working with right now, can only have value or meaning. It can only matter within a context that recognizes a common shared experience of life. That's why no theory will ever subsume all of history, all of reality. Theories only exist in this life that we share. And so in this idea of banishment, which is essentially an an idea of negation, when when I banish, I negate my ideas by putting them in their place. Mm -hmm. There's also an affirmation in in that act of banishment. The affirmation in the act of banishment is the affirmation of the common world, of those things that Samuel Johnson went back to. And Hume mentions the same thing. He's like, when I'm doing philosophy, the whole world comes apart. I have to go back and play some pool with my buddies. That's also real. In fact, all this philosophical work, all of that um, searching for other worlds, that visionary uh, uh, ecstatic kind of deconstruction of established value systems and all that, all of that happens within a context that is our shared common experience. And that always comes first. That's a hard idea to, to swallow in, you know, in today's intellectual climate. Well, you also have, you also have uh, another factor here, which we've been talking about, which is the electronic groundlessness, as it were, the electricity that enthuses us uh, and enthuses us, and even what we're doing right now, where we're three disembodied figures talking across space and time. Uh, this is available to everyone all the time, and right. Rimbaud's visionary mission of the deliberate dislocating of the senses in order to become a seer, as he said is the average experience that most people have. So that commonality has changed. And it seems to me that that's part of the great crisis of our time, which is the acceleration, the emphasis of intensity and the great right. uh, unnameable presence of the uh, iCloud. You know, the fact that data is on our shoulders in a sort of psychic space uh, perpetually. So you hear, you see, you know, the attempts to go back to the land the small houses, you know, those wonderful experiences of the mm. tiny houses where people, you know, remarkably go and read, you know, and don't, don't, don't tune in. Uh, and the eruption of um, more and more yoga classes so that your body begins to have the flexibility to receive the body blows of the psychic information circuits. There's great awareness of the extreme sensitivity at play in our time. And I like what you were saying about theory as a great sort of way of framing and articulating or, or shaping or structuring the uh, overwhelming power of immediacy. And that's mm-hmm. probably why it's so popular in so many ways is because it becomes the fallback position, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. You, can, you can have a, this picture that will briefly explain something to you. 
And I was also thinking along these lines about how there are visionary schools in the world today, you know, that there's the Jack Kerouac School of Disembodied Poetics at Naropa, mm. uh, which uh, Ann Waldman and Ginsburg put together as a way of articulating perception and inspiration and creativity. Uh, the Jack Kerouac School, and then also the Black Mountain School and McLuhan Center at the University of Toronto. These were all structures, places that were set up in which these kinds of discussions could go on. Uh, and then afterwards, you go out for a drink. Yeah. yeah. Right. And the, the going out for a drink is just as important as the theorizing. Yep. At a certain level, I think the going out for the drink side of life and the visionary side two sides of the same coin. I mean, obviously it is, it's all one life, but you can think about like, okay, in that moment that you need banishing in that no moment where you need grounding, uh, what's the thing that you do? What's the thing that you choose? And I liked the example you gave BW of yoga. Um, people take yoga because this allows them to absorb the, the body blows. But I was thinking like, okay, so what did I do personally? I didn't do yoga. I did boxing as uh, our listeners have heard probably uh, uh, to exhaustion. You know, what gave me the idea, somebody who had spent a lifetime as a, a sedentary intellectual type, what, what was it that gave me the idea to walk into a boxing gym and, and sign on the line that is dotted? I couldn't exactly tell you where these ideas come from, but if I look at my life as a representation of something, as the outer representation of some inner process, some kind of perhaps visionary process, it feels like a metaphor for something. What was the right medicine for me at that moment? The right medicine of grounding. Uh, something that has a certain meaning. And that meaningfulness of the thing that you choose to ground yourself, even maybe the kind of thing that you order at the pub when you get done with uh, the seminar. Uh, maybe all of these things have poetic meanings in themselves that all of it somehow is a part of that visionary experience. I think you're hitting it on the head there because if you're going to go out for drinks after class or go out to practice your boxing or yoga, it has value to the extent that it has some kind of meaning for us here, which again reaffirms this common life. And the common life inheres in the supposition that things have meaning. And that kind of is, I think I would say that's kind of one of the driving forces behind any type of visionary experience as well, is that there's something to know. There is something to find. There is a reason for doing this. That's the break on through the other side right. mantra that one hears in the doors, which they picked up from Blake. But Blake was a, a good model for us in many ways, though he suffered dire poverty all his life because he was a very strong uh, figure who lived a, a life of great intensity and, and visionary power, but lived a long, healthy life in many ways uh, had extraordinary courage to be able to discipline himself enough um, to handle constant failure and rejection. And this is something that uh, we look at too when we talk in our classes about these experiences. And, and if you look back at Hildegard von Bingen and Teresa of Avio, the great discipline of prayer, of practice, of ceremony, of ritual, of cleansing themselves through diet and light and music as Hildegard von Bingen uh, advocates, uh, you know, her greening program is very much with us in the, in uh, the spelt bread, health food, meditation traditions, which owe her an extraordinary debt in terms of finding time for light, uh, for rest. It, you cannot live in the ecstatic for long 
without terrible risk to your health, whether mental or otherwise. And the the litter of casualties that we can see in Burroughs, and who did actually live a very long life, but the da- dangers around him, you know, everything from the murder of his wife to the early death of his son from alcoholism and drugs. There is a long litany, as it were, of destructiveness that comes at times from this intensity of experience. On the other hand, we look at the word vocation, it comes from the word vocatus, Latin, which means calling. And to have heard that call, to have felt it in your bones, to have known that something has swept in and swept away many of the frames that you've had can lead to, or must lead to, that sense that you have to stand and walk somewhere and work in a certain way and write or paint or teach in a certain way or create music in a certain way. Rilke has a great poem, which I'm sure I'm mangling in my paraphrase, where he said, at some point, a person stands up and walks and builds a cathedral. And it's the two-edged sword, as it were, the double edge of the double vision, or Blake wanted to call it, of being here in the mundane world and all of its routines and beauties of the ordinary and having that intersect more or less all the time with the extraordinary, the supernatural, and the powerful implications of um, uh, other dimensions. And as I said, I think part of the breakdown that and breakthrough that's occurring to us now, where we're all babies in this brand new world, is the uh, evolutionary hyperdrive of, of being connected anyway to what's going on in a, with an hallucinatory intensity. So that, you know, I'm part of the media ecology movement, and the media ecology movement emphasizes unplugging, no internet, no television, no telephones for a portion of the day. That doesn't mean that you will not be influenced because the influence is static cling, it's everywhere. Uh, But at least it asks the question about the cleansing, the cleaning out of the senses and the perception. There are some composers, I think Phil's comments earlier are very powerful on this. There are some musicians of which Hildegard von Bingen has great influence. I'm thinking of Parts music, Evro Parts music, that that, act as a kind of ear cleaning, a kind of refreshment, a kind of refining, so that it has spiritual content, but it brings a kind of peace, a kind of rest, so that 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 realm is not so dislocating and disruptive. It becomes more contemplative. It's refined by that alchemy into reflection. Uh, I think once touched by that fire, it's extremely hard not to to either crave it, which is the danger, or to... um, Ignore it, which will uh, probably turn you even more neurotic than you already are. Consider subscribing to Weird Studies on iTunes, Stitcher, or another podcast service. You can also follow us on Twitter or support us on Patreon. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel. Thank you for listening.